thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. For the last uh, several weeks now, we've been going through the book of Proverbs in a, a study we're calling The Path. And this morning, we're finishing up that series. And over the last several weeks, we have learned uh, some pretty obvious, but some pretty vital truth that we need to understand. Of course, we've seen every single week that your direction determines your destination. You end up where you're going. You know, if you go on 81 and go north, you're going to end up in Pennsylvania eventually because that's the direction that you're going. You go south, you're going to end up in Tennessee eventually because that's the direction you're going. Your direction determines your destination. And so we saw this the second week that when you realize that you are headed toward the destination that you don't want to end up in in your life. Maybe you your destination for your marriage is you want to end up uh, like several of our couples here where you're married for 60 or 70 or 80 years and it's just a, a Christ-honoring marriage that just people uh, love to look at and you want to be a, a cute old couple sitting on the rocking chair together making people, making your grandkids still gross because that's just how you are. That's how we're going to be. That's your, that's your destination you want in mind. But you, several years in marriage, you notice, I'm not heading that way. I'm headed towards divorce, or I'm headed towards heartbreak, or I'm headed towards infidelity. I'm headed towards a place I don't want to go. When you realize you're going in a direction you, towards a destination you don't want to end up, you need to make a course correction. You need to get off the path you're on and get on a new path. When you're, we saw when you're choosing the path to your destination, don't trust your heart. You know, every Disney song and every kid song, you know, trust your heart. No, your heart is deceitful. The Bible says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So people say, man, just trust your heart. That is the worst advice you can be given because your heart every time will lead you astray. Solomon tells us that we are to trust God with our heart. Allow God to direct our path. And it says if you, you lean on God's understanding and trust in, not in your heart, but lean on God's understanding, He will direct your path. And then we saw that while you're on the path of life, there are wise people God has placed ahead of you. There are people who, they are at the destination you want to end up at. So the wise thing to do would be to find those people who are at the destination you want to, you want to end up at and get directions from them. How did they get there? How do they avoid the pitfalls that so many other people do? You know, what too many of us do is we find people who are at the same stage of life as us, and we ask them for directions. You know, say, you've got small kids, I've got small kids, how do I raise God-fearing kids? Well, don't ask them, they don't know either. Ask someone who raised kids that you want your kids to end up being like. People who raise kids who, who love God and who are, who are decent humans and good citizens. You know, when they grow up to be just the most horrible people, don't ask their parents how they did it. Ask people who raised kids the way you want to. And then finally, we saw last week that your attention determines your direction. 
When you're on the road of life, you know, we use the analogy of driving. When you're, on, when you're driving and something else gets your attention, it's very easy to veer that away or maybe have an accident. Or maybe just, you know, this week we saw this in effect. One of us in our family had an accident because they weren't paying attention. I backed into a lady at the parking lot because I wasn't paying attention. So you got to pay attention when you're driving. Yeah, her car was fine. Yeah, my car was fine too. So it didn't matter. But anyway, so you got to pay attention so you don't back into stuff or hit things. And so when you when your attention gets diverted, you veer off course. Same thing in life. You have a destination in mind, but something grabs your attention that gets you off of your path. So your attention determines your direction, which determines your destination. So it's vitally important that we are pay attention, paying attention to the right things. Now each of us, we've seen this, each of us have a destination we want to end up at in our lives with our finances. You know, no one here, I believe no one here says, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to have so much debt and I want to have bankruptcy and foreclosure and I want to retire with no money in the bank and just living off the government, hoping Social Security is going to be there. That's what I want to do. No. We start off our life saying, I want to end my life with retirement fund and my house paid off and money in the bank and all these things. And so we have that destination in mind, but we don't end up at it. So every one of us, have, we have a destination for our finances. We have a destination for our relationships, have a destination for our health. We have destinations for our spiritual walk with God. Now, the problem comes when we have one destination in mind but we're actually headed towards a different direction. And that's what we've been looking at for the last six weeks. But the problem with the principle of the path is it gives us the implication that you can always get from where you are to where you want to be. And sadly, that's not always the case. You can retrace your steps, but you, you can't turn back the hands of the clock. You can make better choices next time, But you can't do anything, you can't go back and do anything about the first time you made bad decisions. Time, bad decision, and experience, unfortunately, sometimes they put some destinations out of reach for us. Sometimes there are dreams we have that because of events that have happened in our life, because of decisions we made early on the path, there are some dreams we have that they just... They're not going to come true. Those roads are closed to us. There's money that is lost for good. There are relationships that sometimes just can't be mended. There are scars that we just can't hide. And so some destinations become unreachable. They become unreachable because of lifestyle choices that maybe we have made. Some become unreachable because of a single decision we made earlier on in our life. Some become unreachable because of of mistakes that we've made. Some become unreachable because of decisions that other people have made. Sometimes we are to blame. Sometimes others are to blame. And after a while, the reason we can't get to where we want to be, the reason doesn't matter. We are where we are, we can't be where we want to be, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Some chapters of your life just can't be torn out of the book. They can't be rewritten. So as we finish this series, I want to answer a very important question. What do you do 
when you realize there are destinations you can never reach? What do you do when, when things happen, sometimes out of your control, that make it impossible to get to where you want to be? You know, every one of us have had some type of disappointment in our life at, at some point. You know, oftentimes it's, it's us that is the culprit. You know, Vince Lombardi used to say, or oftentimes it's time that's culprit. Vince Lombardi used to say, we didn't lose, we just ran out of time. Sometimes we can't reach our destination because we just we put off going there too long. With unlimited time, maybe we could reach every destination we had in life, but the clock is always running. And at some point we wake up to realize that it, whatever it is, is never going to happen. And if that isn't bad enough, you, sometimes you look around and it looks like everyone else in your life is reaching the destination you wanted to go to. They're where you want to be, and you can never get there. Everyone seems to be living your dream. Everyone seems to be arriving at your destination. Everyone that is, except you. Everybody else is taking family vacations, and of course now this is the season, and so you get on Facebook and you see everyone's beach vacation. And they're having fun, and they're living it up. And you know, there's a, a couple friends I have from high school that every year, I don't know how they do it, but every year they'll go to the beach at two different times and spend like three weeks each time. And I'm like, do you people not work? And if you don't work, how do you afford six weeks at the beach? Because I want to know. I need to figure out how you do this. But they'll, they, they're, they're, so you get on the computer, you get on Facebook, you see people there. They're at the beach, they're on vacation, they're living it up. They're they're doing things you want to do, but you are so broke and so far in debt, you're just. You're never going to get there. And so it causes bitterness. Maybe you've been in 12 weddings, but none of them are yours. It doesn't look like you're going to have one. Or maybe you're contemplating divorce while everyone else seems happy. Everyone you know seems to have their career going the way that you want yours to go, but you're stuck in some dead-end job. Maybe, you know, I, haven't hit, maybe I haven't hit the area that you are struggling with, but you've got an area of conflict. Every one of us have disappointments. Every one of us struggle with things that we wanted to do with our life, and now it's not that we're just not going to do it. We can't do it. It's out of reach. Everybody has a destination they can't reach, a dream that won't come true. And these road closures are very emotional issues for us. Sometimes they're so emotionally difficult, you just wish I would shut up. Or you're going to shut me out. But don't. Because the Bible tells us about these things. These unreachable destinations, they create circumstances that God can use in our life to teach us that while our dream may be out of reach, we are never out of His reach. But let's be honest, sometimes the fact that we can't get to where we want to go, we blame God for it. And it causes bitterness between us and our Heavenly Father. You feel like maybe He made you a promise that didn't come true. You're convinced that the destination you wanted to reach, it was, it was placed in your heart by God, and you feel that dream can't come true. It wasn't just your dream, but it was God's dream for your life. And now... Because of the pain 
You desperately need to lean on your heavenly father, but you don't know if you can trust him. You don't know if he can be trusted. Maybe you're not even sure if he's there. And let's be honest, most believers, I've been there. We're like, is God even, is he even there for me? Does he even care anymore? So you're not even sure if he's there and you're hoping that if you, you're hoping I say don't pray, just pray through it because if, you, if I did say that, you'd have no idea what to say because you know it wouldn't work. You've done everything you know to do and despite your destinations, your, your best efforts, certain destinations are just out of reach. And not being able to reach a destination you always wanted to reach can cause heartache and pain. And Solomon knew this. Look what Solomon said in Proverbs 13, verse 12. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. When dreams don't come true, makes you sick. But then he says, but when the desire cometh, it's the tree of life. So what do you do when you're here and you want to get there, but the road's closed. When you're here, and you want to get there, but you're never going to get there. Now, the great thing about Scripture is that it shows us that no matter what we are going through, someone has already gone through it. Someone has faced what you're facing. Someone has felt what you're feeling, and their faith has survived. I mean, think about your favorite Bible character. The reason they're probably your favorite is because they faced some incredible trial and they came through it with their faith stronger. It may not have worked out great for them, but they, they relied on God, they trusted God, they stayed faithful to God, and boom, they're now your favorite Bible character. No one's favorite Bible character is Pharaoh. No one thinks, man, Judas is mine. No, he ain't. And if he is, you got issues. We like people, we like characters who so they go through trials, they go through struggles. Sometimes they go through horrible events. But they say faithful to God. And that's why they're your favorite. Your favorite Bible story probably revolves around conflict. Probably revolves around disappointment. And most importantly, it always revolves around God's faithfulness. We see in the life of David an example of how he responded when the inevitable events of life Happened to him. So go on and turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now the story we're going to look at this morning, it takes place while, while David, of course, he was king of Israel. He's been king now for about 50 years. He's, he's, you know, he's about 50 years old now, and he's been Israel's king for, for quite a while. And at this point in his life, he's had a lot of kids He's had many different wives, and he's conquered a lot of enemies. Uh, he's, he's got a legacy. He's got a future uh, and a promise from God, but he is just weeks away from an event that would put certain things in his life out of reach forever. Now, David's firstborn son was named Amnon. Now, Amnon, he was the heir to the throne. He was the one who would become king after David died. Now, Amnon, unfortunately, he fell in love with his sister Tamar. Now, as it is today, this type of relationship was not acceptable socially. It was also illegal, as it should be, 
And so this Amnon, he, he had, a, had a, a desire to be with the sister, and it could never happen. So he was lovesick. Look at verse number 2 in chapter thir- uh, 13. It says he was, he was lovesick about this. The Bible says that Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. He was literally lovesick. He had no idea what to do. And so he came up with a plan to allow himself to be alone with his sister so he could see if she was interested in a relationship too. He, he pretended to be sick. And so he pretends to be sick and he sends to David and says, Hey, Dad, I'm, I'm not feeling real well. And you know what really perked me up? If you would send Tamar to, to make me some lunch, bring me some chicken soup or something. And that would, just, that would really make me feel better. So he, he pretends to be sick and he convinces David to send Tamar to prepare a meal for him. And when she arrives, Amnon makes everyone else, all of his servants, everyone in the house, leave the house and he calls her into the bedroom to feed him. And when she gets there, he, he grabs her and says, you know, Tamar, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to be with you. Do you feel the same way? And of course, she's like, are you crazy? You're my brother. This is unacceptable. This is gross. People, this is going to be a disgrace to the entire family. Now, Amnon, he didn't want to hear this. He gets angry. He refuses to to hear what she has to say, and he ends up raping his sister. After he's done, he calls the servants back, and he has her thrown out of the house. His love for her wasn't love. It was lust. And once he took what he wanted, the Bible says he hated her. Look at verse number 14 and 15. It says, How be it? When he would not hearken to her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. So the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. David finds out. And as he should be, he's furious. But he didn't do anything. Nothing. He didn't punish Amnon. He didn't comfort Tamar. He didn't do anything. He just... Let it go. Now, he, he may have done so because Amnon was the heir. And he didn't want to make this public knowledge and punish him publicly because it would bring shame to the family and it would make him unable to be the king. Maybe he felt that his affair with Bathsheba didn't put him on good enough moral ground to talk to Amnon and punish Amnon for his sin. But... Whatever the reason, he just let it go. And that was a very unwise decision. Now this decision, it set the stage for the rest of the events that we're going to look at this morning. Because Tamar, she went to her brother Absalom. Now Absalom, he heard the story. He also was furious. And, but unlike his dad, he decided he was going to do something. Now Amnon was the heir to the throne. He was the one who was going to be king, but Absalom was David's favorite. He was the most like David. He was a strong leader. He was a warrior. He was a hunter. He had a bold personality. So he was, he was handsome and charismatic, and he was patient. And he waited two years before acting to defend his sister. And when he did, 
He did it in an incredible way. He threw a party. He invited all of his brothers and sisters to his house. And they're having a party. They're eating. A, they're having a feast. And they're eating a bunch of food. And they're drinking a bunch of wine until their senses get dull. And right when they're, they're kind of you know, fat, right after Thanksgiving, they're like, oh, I couldn't even move. That's when Absalom calls in his soldiers. And they kill Amnon in front of everybody. Now, the rest of his brothers and sisters think he's going to kill them too. This is a coup. So they freak out and run. And they, they get out of there. Well, David hears about this. Of course, now it's terrible because Absalom, after he killed Amnon, he fled to another country. He fled to <coughs> a land uh, called Geshar in Syria. So he, he avenged Tamar's rape. He kills his brother. He flees the country to get away from David. And David, when he hears of the murder, he weeps uncontrollably, and understandably so. His entire world is different now. He's just lost two sons in one night. The heir to the throne is dead, and his favorite son is in exile, never able to come back because of what he's done. And to make matters worse, David knew it was his responsibility to avenge Amnon's murder by arresting Absalom and punishing him But just like the last time, David doesn't do anything. He lets it go. Three years go by. The Bible tells us that Absalom and David begin to miss each other. And so Joab, he kind of is the captain of David's army. He works with Absalom to allow Absalom to re-enter the country and come back to the capital city so he can spend time with his dad, so he can see his dad. And so Absalom, he comes back into Jerusalem, he comes back into the city, and he waits to see his dad, and David refuses to see him. And he's confused. Why did you call me back home if you're, you're not going to allow me to see you? Why did you bring me back here if you're not going to have anything to do with me? So he calls for Joab to see what's going on, but Joab ignores him. So Absalom, he, he does what the only thing he knows how to do. He burns Joab's fields down. Just trying to get a meeting with a guy. So Joab, of course, finds out it's him, and he, he meets with Absalom to find out what's going on. And Absalom, he demanded to see David. Now, with all the drama surrounding this meeting... You'd think we'd have like four or five chapters detailing what was said, detailing what went on, how they reacted, but we don't. We got one verse. 2 Samuel 14, verse 33. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king cast Absalom. That's it. Absalom's dismissed. He never sees his dad again. Absalom bows to David. David kisses him and the meeting's over. And that is not what Absalom was looking for. He wanted answers. Why hadn't he avenged Tamar himself? Why hadn't he punished Amnon when he did wrong in the first place? Why did he allow this to happen in the first place? And he didn't get what he wanted. And this is the last time he saw David. And this, this, this encounter... It started a root of bitterness in Absalom's heart. So Absalom, he never recovered from David's refusal to reconcile. His bitterness grew into a desire for revenge. But Absalom was patient. So he waited. For the next four years, 
he sits at the main gate of Jerusalem and he makes himself available to the common man. People would always come to the king for, for dispute reconciliation. And David was kind of hard to get to. Of course, he's running a big country, got a lot of wars going on, so he's kind of hard to get to. So people can't get to him, but they can get to Absalom. And so they're coming to Absalom, and Absalom is, is kind of winning the heart of the populace. People are starting to look at Absalom and say, hey, he's just like his dad used to be, but David's different. So his judiciousness, his accessibility, his charisma, they were the talk of the city, and eventually the talk of the nation. And in time, he won the heart of the people. And after four years, Absalom, he made his move. He went to Hebron, Hebron. And he had himself declared king. This is the first step of his plan to overthrow David as king. So Absalom and his followers, they, they rose up and they proclaimed that Israel has a new king. David's no longer king. Now Absalom is king. Second Samuel 15 verse 12 summarizes it this way. And the conspiracy, that's not it, and the conspiracy was strong... For the people increase continually with Absalom. Imagine when David got the news. Hey, your highness, Absalom has declared himself king, and this isn't just a showy thing. He's got most of the nation behind him. Half the army has gone with him. They're marching on Jerusalem to overthrow you and kill you. Now, there are some times in our lives where we will get news that changes our future irreversibly. And this is one of those moments in David's lives. You know, there's information that will kill our dreams. And the moments that follow, we're, we're lost. Because the road we wanted to travel down is closed. We are lost because part of what defined us for the future was gone. It's hard to imagine your future without someone you've loved for 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's difficult to find your bearings when a career you wanted and a career you were working towards vanishes with an email. It's one thing to talk about divorce, but what do you do when you get served divorce papers? The news of Absalom's, divorce, of Absalom's rebellion was all of that and more for David. If there was ever a chance of reconciliation with his son, it's gone. He can never have that back. That road is now closed to him. If there was any hope of Absalom becoming the true rightful king of Israel, it was gone. That would never happen again. The son, most like David, his favorite son, was gone forever in David's life. That was a destination that was out of reach. It would never happen. The road was closed forever. When David heard of the rebellion, he responded like a defeated man. He abandons the city and he walks away from his throne. He said that he did this because he didn't want to turn Jerusalem into a battleground. He didn't want the people to suffer, but, but that wasn't true. David didn't want to have to fight his own son. He didn't want to have to have the have the, the maybe the the pro probability of having to kill his favorite son. So he fled 
to get out of his reach and force a confront and not force a confrontation. Second Samuel fifteen twenty three says that as he left, all the country wept with a loud voice. So David's life, his destination that he wanted for his family and for the kingdom is is gone forever. His his favorite son, his oldest son's never going to be king because he's dead. His favorite son's never going to be king because of this rebellion. So his entire life is just completely trashed. He has no idea what the future holds. He's fled from Jerusalem. He doesn't know what to do. And the high priest, Zadok, he meets David and told him that he did something for him. He tells David, says, I have taken the Ark of the Covenant. I've brought it to you. Now, this was, this was tremendous news. It was an incredible thing because Israel knew that the Ark represented the power and the presence of God. Anytime they had the ark in battle, they never lost because it always represented God fighting for them. So this meant that David had the ark, so David was guaranteed to win. He was going to win no matter what. It could be interpreted another way as well. Since David had the ark, it would show all of Israel that David was innocent and blameless in God's eyes and he would be vindicated in the end. But David didn't see it that way. David saw it as forcing his way down a road that God didn't want him to go down. David saw it as trying to force something that he wanted that maybe God didn't want. So instead of taking the ark, he has it sent back to Jerusalem. This is a man who'd already lost everything. He lost everything that mattered to him. It's been taken away. His future was dark. The only thing he knew for sure was the dreams he had before are gone forever. His firstborn was dead. His daughter's honor was gone. His relationship with Absalom was lost. The kingdom was divided. His reputation was ruined. He's about to go to war with his own army led by his own son. Things were very, very bad. So why not take the ark? Look at what he tells Zadok. He says, And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he say thus, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. David had learned a very valuable lesson as a shepherd, as a king, and it's a lesson that we need to learn as well. God can be trusted, but God cannot be manipulated. You can trust God, but you can't manipulate God to do what you want him to do. David has lost his dreams, but he hasn't lost his faith. Taking the ark was an effort to force God's hand to open up a road that may be closed to him. David knew better. He learned better. He would not try to bargain with God. He would not abandon his faith. Instead, David decided to accept whatever, future, whatever the future held as if it came directly from the hand of God because it did. He said, my life is a mess right now. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I trust God. And if God wants to kill me, so be it. If God wants to restore me, so be it. Let God do to me 
whatever he pleases. Let him do as seemeth good unto him. David was going to accept whatever new roads came as they were the will of God. There are times in, in our lives where sometimes we're forced to turn, on, turn our backs on something we'd, we'd hoped for, we'd planned for, we dreamed about. And these are defining moments in our lives. For some people, these moments mark an end of their faith. The disappointment makes them believe that God can't be trusted in the future, so they turn their back on God and walk away completely. But for others, this is where their faith begins. Their Jerusalem moment, it forces them to face the reality that they have no control over the future. They only have hope in God. When you realize that your dreams can't come true, the only response is to lean heavily on your Heavenly Father. Even when it seems that God is responsible for your hurt. The only other option is to run from the only true source of comfort that we have. David chose to trust the very God who could have kept all these troubles from happening in the first place. So what do you do when you realize that your dreams can't come true? When you realize the road you wanted for your life is closed. You have a couple options. You can be angry. You can be angry at God. You can be angry at life. You can despair. You can be sad and depressed. You can try to force your way through the roadblock and, and get there anyway. You can, you can try to live your dream through your kids. You didn't get to do that, but you can make sure they have the, the dream fulfilled that you wanted to have as well. But at the end of your, your striving and your manipulating and your forcing and your go, nothing's changed. The road's still closed. The dream's still dead. So your option, your other option, is to do what David did. You drop to your knees. You cry out in disappointment to your heavenly Father. You mourn the loss of your dream. Then you wipe your eyes and you pray, God, do to me whatever seems good to you. I still believe in you. I still trust in you, and I'll still follow you. After you've prayed, basically not my will, but thine be done, you can rest in the fact that you've done all you can do, and you've done all you should do. You can get angry and try to force it, or you can just trust God. And as Psalms Proverbs said in chapter 3, you can trust Him and allow Him to direct your path. Because here's the thing, if you're trusting in God and leaning not on your understanding but His, and He directs your path, He knows when the road's closed. And He'll take you around a detour. Get mad or trust God. Those are our options.